From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The census is ending a month early. What's at stake and what challenges does that create? And colleges around the country are scrambling to plan for the fall. Online or in-person classes is the big question. What will the mix look like in Colorado? Then, after a high-profile attack, the RTD board is set to vote on whether to trade security guards for social workers. Plus, who should we commemorate with statues and memorials? As controversial statues come down, a Denver artist is part of conversations about what to do with them. He was the first black astronaut candidate, an engineer, and a businessman. Now he's a distinguished sculptor, memorializing figures and movements in black U.S. history. I got into this art thing on a total humbug, if you will. (laughs) This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Census workers in most parts of the country will begin knocking on doors today. They'll be trying to get as many responses as they can before the new deadline of September 30th. That's about a month less time to collect data than they expected. About two-thirds of people in Colorado have already responded to the census. There's a lot at stake about getting an accurate account. Census data determines how federal funds are distributed for the next 10 years for things like transportation and public schools. It also determines how many representatives each each state gets in Congress. Colorado stands to gain a seat. Joining us to talk about the 2020 census today is Rebecca Theobald. She's an assistant research professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. She serves on the Pikes Peak Area Complete Count Committee for the census, and she travels to local schools and talks to kids and teachers about the importance of the survey. Professor Theobald, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for attending to this very important issue in our country. Absolutely. The enumerators, that's the fancy word for people who collect the responses to the census, they're heading out to knock on doors in many parts of Colorado today. You were an enumerator in 2000 and your daughter is an enumerator this year. What kind of responses do you typically get when you knock on a door? Well, the most important piece is to figure out if those individuals are home. And if no one is home, then the enumerators will have to return. But for the most part, my daughter has been finding that people are receptive. Uh, They are happy to answer the question. It just hasn't been something that they thought was important to do before this. And what should people know if a census enumerator comes to their door in the coming weeks? They, They should not be hostile. Uh, They should know that this is a requirement of living here in the United States, uh, that uh, really we're, you know, participating uh, because it's the law, it's part of the social compact, similar to serving on a jury, obtaining a driver's license, paying taxes. People who live in the country must complete the census questionnaire, and it will really only take... you know, 10 minutes or less, depending on the number of people in your household. Now, in past years, most of the responses would already have been gathered by now. But this whole process, it was delayed several months because of COVID-19. And just within the last week, we learned from previously extended deadline, it'll be shortened by a month. The Census Bureau changed it from October 31st to September 30th. What challenges does that create? This means that Everyone working with the census has to be more efficient, and although the census has uh, had a 
good um, effort in terms of recruiting people, uh, both in Colorado and across the country. Uh, it's still just a matter of time. It takes time to go out, knock on doors. If those people aren't home, you still have to go back. So we are very concerned um, in the research community uh, at the local and state government level that there will be an inaccurate count as a result of, of this push. Uh, so we are, have been communicating with elected officials to really encourage them to uh, return to that October 31st date, which seems uh, much more likely in terms of uh, collecting enough information. And just to get clarity, what is the reason you've heard for ending the census gathering a month early? Uh, there was a uh, um, statement put out on August 3rd by the U.S. Census Bureau director who said, we will improve the speed of our count without sacrificing completeness. Uh, that's really all the information that's available. Hmm. Well, one perennial struggle for the census that's not related to the pandemic is getting responses from communities that are considered hard to reach. Places that are lower income or more ethnically and racially diverse typically have lower response rates. We spoke with the Denver City Councilwoman Jamie Torres from District 3, who represents some of these communities. Some of the historical barriers that we that we see often uh, have tended to be around invisibility or living under the radar. So in the past, when I was involved with the census in 2010, we looked a lot at folks who did not interact with government systems often enough or who were deliberately trying to stay under the radar. Maybe they were our immigrant community. Maybe they were folks who were formerly incarcerated. Um, maybe they're homeless or they're folks who don't tend to um, connect well on, on social media and on the internet. Uh, our seniors, some of our low-income communities. These are all folks who tend to be hard to reach. And then add to that housing circumstances. Renters tend to be also hard to reach, who may be moving at the time that the census count is taking place, or that announcements are made, or that the mailer actually goes out, and they might miss some of those cues. So on that note, do we know much about people who tend to respond to the census through door knocking? Because there are other ways to respond, by mail, phone, or online. Is there a concern that specific populations could be undercounted with the census gathering ending early? All of those individuals that you and the councilwoman mentioned absolutely are where the focus has been for these over 100 complete count committees across the state and also across the country. That has been the focus, not, not the people who are going to turn their form in because it's part of how they participate in, in their community. It's really making sure that those individuals who are more difficult to reach and then require a knock on the door, those, those are the individuals we, we want to, to get to. And uh, people sometimes forget that children under five also need to be counted in the census. Uh, so that's another population that is very important, particularly for people who are planning um, in terms of schooling going forward. And Councilwoman Jamie Torres, she was talking primarily about urban constituents, but you point out that rural Colorado is another huge part of the challenge for getting a full census count, right? Absolutely. And people can go online to the census.gov uh, account, look at the response rate map, and you can look at it by state, by county, uh, by 
city census track and you can see how your own community is doing. And if you look at that map today, much of rural Colorado uh, is lower in response rate. And that is of significant concern, especially as we in Colorado are hoping to gain an additional representative in Congress. So how is the 2020 census going compared to the 2010 census at this point? In terms of self-response rate in Colorado, it is really not that much different. And the places that are usually seen to be hard to count are continuing to be hard to count. So the the demographics um, really aren't that surprising. Uh, We've known the challenges. They have been exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, but they they have not been that uh, confounding to what the plans were already to reach these uh, difficult-to-count populations. And you've mentioned this a little bit already before. Colorado is one of the states that stands to gain a seat in Congress. Um, is that really a toss-up right now that depends exclusively on census data? So I guess elaborate more on what's at stake with the census. Certainly. Without an accurate count of the complete population throughout the United States, dividing people into electoral districts will lead to some people having an advantage and others having a disadvantage. The census counts all persons, no matter their age or citizenship status, as needing representation. And without this accurate baseline data about the number and type of people in a community, it is more difficult for elected officials to represent them. And if the data is not accurate coming out of the Census Bureau to the executive branch and subsequently to the states for redistricting, then we will be, the the information will be skewed. Um, And that information will be inaccurate going forward uh, for uh, not only representation, but also for distribution of finances and for researchers, historians, statisticians, everyone who is dependent on an accurate census count in 2020. And then obviously we can't talk about hardly anything these days without talking about the pandemic. More than 162,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. so far. And many of those have been since April 1st, the day that the census count is officially pegged to. Is there a chance that Colorado's numbers will be skewed simply because of the people who are hospitalized or who have died from COVID-19? If you are alive on April 1st, whether you were born on uh, March 31st or whether you passed away on April 2nd, you should be counted as being in Colorado, being in the United States on that date. And so the question that the enumerators will ask is, where did you live on April 1st and how many people were in your household at that time? And people don't need to wait for a knock on the door, do they? Where can people go to fill out a census form online if they haven't responded already? If they have not responded, it would be fantastic because the most accurate information comes from the individuals themselves. So today you would go to uh, census.gov, um, and there you, if you're not comfortable responding online, you could uh, make a call and a census worker will take your information. That is also a a difference from how things have worked in the past. At this time, the 
non-response follow-up, which is the enumerators going out and knocking on doors, as well as the self-response efforts are happening at the same time. Mm. So it's important for people to know that even if today they responded to uh, the online survey, they might still get a knock on the door because their information as have being a non-responder was already uh, put into the system. Uh, so the enumerators are using sophisticated online mapping tools uh, to be able to efficiently cover uh, the spaces uh, and visit the homes of the people who have not yet responded. But there's going to be a little bit of a lag time in those systems. Well, Professor Rebecca Theobald, thank you so much for joining us. I am happy to be here. And again, thank you for sharing this information uh, with people across Colorado. Rebecca Theobald is geography professor at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. She serves on the Pikes Peak Area Complete Count Committee for the Census. Universities across the state welcome students back to campus starting next week, many with added precautions like at CU Boulder, where students moving into the dorms will have to take a COVID-19 test. And there's still the question of how much learning will be in person or online. Jason Gonzalez, the higher education reporter for Chalkbeat, has been watching these plans unfold. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I know that the plans vary from school to school, but generally, could you describe what life is probably going to look like this fall on university campuses in Colorado? Yeah, so on campus, it's I, it's really not going to look like campus as usual. Um, a lot of schools have really modified their plans, so uh, most of their, their classes will be remote. You, it will look a little bit more like the spring semester where they were required to go uh, to online classes, then it will kind of that, that traditional sense of a, a campus life that uh, we've come to expect. There still will be students on campus um, and, and some that are required to be on, in person. Uh, it's really going to depend class to class. Uh, over the last uh, several weeks, a uh, month, that students are, are getting to a place where they saw their classes as in-person and then have slowly moved to remote. But those for who have hands-on classes, such as labs, uh, those who are at community colleges and have sort of those career and technical education classes, automotive classes, for instance, they're going to have to be in-person. That's the best place for them to learn. Um, although schools are really thinking about those plan Bs and plan Cs in case, uh, you know, the trajectory of the coronavirus um, Right, because even best laid plans could all change if there's an outbreak or another statewide stay-at-home order. Do you know what's driving universities to have some level of in-person classes and students back on campus, as opposed to just doing everything online? Yeah, I can't really say what everything, all all the decisions that were made around why we need to have an in-person sort of start. Um, If you look at nationally, Harvard... um, said, hey, we're very early, said we're going to be online. Um, I think in Colorado, there's probably several factors that are going on here. What I'm hearing is, um, of course, there's that diminished experience um, for students. So then in-person versus remote. So they want to try to give students the best experience they can. Um, But they also depend greatly on enrollment after serious disinvestment, especially over the great recession, and you've seen tuition spike. Um, and that means that it, 
schools really rely on enrollment. Uh, they really rely on that tuition revenue. So having that messaging that, hey, we're going to be back um, in some way to students, I, I think uh, benefits the schools to be able to attract them onto campus. Um, you know, there's been a tuition freeze mostly across the state. Um, and I think that's a bit of an acknowledgement that, hey, there's already a lot of things going on around uh, the experience for students. Uh, and, you know, we know this is not going to be the same. Uh, so we don't want to raise tuition. But, you know, schools, I think, have done everything they can to attract students to enroll because they, they just don't know what's going to happen around enrollment. And there's a lot of money that uh, schools rely on, depend on um, around tuition. And what are you hearing from students about what they're hoping to see next year? Yeah, so I think there's a general acknowledgement of why things need to be sort of scaled back, that, that campus life isn't going to be the same. Um, students really do want to be on campus. I think this is, you know, that's not a real question. I, I don't, most of the students that I've talked to don't love remote instruction. I think, you know, there's a campus life aspect uh, and a community aspect that really students gravitate towards. It's why they go to go to college. It's, it's part of the experience, you know, it's the things you talk about when you graduate and what you hear from, you know, alumni is, is that campus experience. Um, so they, they want that, but it, I think they also are really understanding of what's going on right now, why, you know, schools can't be back in person uh, fully. So, you know, it's it's a part of it's sort of a dual kind of thing. Students are are kind of antsy to get back, but they also, you know, they really do understand. Yeah, and then you mentioned the state that the universities they're not raising tuition this year. Can you talk about the long term impacts of not raising tuition? Yeah. Uh, so right now, the the tuition um, holding it flat is is really tough for schools because there is a state disinvestment this year. Um, and so Colorado lawmakers cut higher education by 58%. Um, some of that money was put back in through federal money. And so overall, it's about a 5% cut to higher education institutions across the state. Um, you know, they're at, this is at a time where they need that revenue. Um, they need, you know, they're not sure what enrollment is going to look like. Uh, so for this year, I think things uh, you'll see furloughs, um, you'll mm -hmm. see layoffs, you'll see, uh, you know, impacts to departments and, and um, campuses for across the state. That's Jason Gonzalez. He's the higher education reporter for Chalkbeat, Colorado. Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol is where the House of Representatives used to meet. It's lined with statues gifted by the states and has an ornate half-dome ceiling. It also happens to be Representative Ken Buck's favorite room in the Capitol. It's featured in his new book about the building and what it means to him. CPR's Caitlin Kim got a tour of sorts from Buck. One of the fun parts of working at the Capitol is taking guests on tours. Before the pandemic, you'd see crowds clogging the hallways with guides, congressional staffers, and the occasional Congress member. It's part of the job that Representative Ken Buck enjoys. And as I stand in a very empty statuary hall, he gives me a mini tour over the phone. Yeah, I, I think the statuary hall is a, a great example of the history that you can see in the, in the Capitol. 
Buck's love of the building and his interest in history inspired him to write Capital of Freedom, Restoring American Greatness. He says the Capitol and its art, artifacts, and architecture have a story to tell about the nation's founding principles. He has me look at a niche above an entrance that leads to the current house chamber. It contains the statue of a woman, Liberty, holding a scroll in her right hand. The scroll is the Constitution, um, as if that uh, statue of freedom is telling the members who are sitting on the floor that they should follow the Constitution as they consider their votes. For Buck, a politician and chair of the state's Republican Party, the book is an opportunity to give some constitutional and historical context. He finds examples to illustrate the importance of his conservative beliefs, from property rights to gun rights and fiscal restraint. And, maybe surprisingly, he challenges the notion that Congress is a co-equal branch of government. He sees it as the primary branch. Our founders wanted to make sure that we didn't create another monarchy, that we didn't have a, uh, a president or a strong executive that, that ruled the country, that we were represented um, in a republic, not a democracy, in a republic that uh, was represented in, in a body like Congress. Congress should write the laws and not the courts and certainly not the president through executive orders. But while he's critical of former presidents, including Barack Obama, he is more forgiving of the current head of his party, President Donald Trump, who, like previous occupants of the office, has also pushed the boundaries of executive power. Back in Statuary Hall, Buck tells me to look at the floor. Plaques mark where former representatives, who also served as president, sat. John Quincy Adams uh, was a president um, and then ran for the House and, and became a member of the House. And, and uh, in the House, we call that a promotion. And Adams benefited from the architecture of the half-dome ceiling in the hall. It creates a whispering gallery, an acoustical effect enabling someone to eavesdrop on a conversation several feet away. It helped Adams through some contentious debates. He had one good ear, and, and he put that good ear to the ceiling, and he could hear the whispering that, that those Democrats were doing. For all the political red meat in the book, there's usually an equally fun tidbit to be learned, like where in the building a reporter shot a congressman, or that there's a replica of the Magna Carta tucked away in the crypt. But mainly, Buck wants people to see the Capitol for themselves. They should come to the U.S. Capitol. They should take a tour, um, either with their member of Congress or uh, one of the tour guides from the Capitol Visitor Center. And, and they should see for themselves the, the just magnificent museum that we have created on Capitol Hill. Tours have been closed since the pandemic. Buck hopes they'll resume again before the end of the year. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. When we come back... He made Denver's memorial to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He reflects on what's happening in the world today. As Colorado Matters continues, I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. Calls to defund the police have echoed across the country this summer. That scrutiny includes security guards at places like Denver's Union Station. Tonight, the RTD board votes on whether to cut funding for security at its stations and on its vehicles. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. 
Rivera Stinnett was waiting for a train in Union Station early one morning in April 2018 when security officers told him to go into a bathroom. They followed him in, told everyone to leave, and then one beat him unconscious while three others stood guard. The Denver artist recently told CPR's Colorado Matters that even though it's been more than two years, he's still struggling. It seems like every time I try to paint, I just bust out in tears, or if I'm even making the sketch for the painting. It's just tears. It's all tears. Outrage over that case coincided with a summer of protests demanding police reform. In the case of RTD, most enforcement is done not by police officers, but by private security guards. Members of the public have pressured the RTD board to cut ties with the contractor, Allied Universal, whose guard attacks Stinnett. That is a black eye on Denver to do business with an egregious gangster company such as Allied Universal. I am personally refusing to utilize public transportation or the businesses inside Union Station until... The- we call for you to sever all ties with Allied Universal Services and cancel that $40 million contract. Allied did not respond to a request for comment and the RTD board will consider a proposal to end its relationship with the company. Board member Chantal Lewis put forward the idea. She says the feedback she received about the Stinnett incident was one motivating factor. That um, was important for me, but really uh, what made me start working on this was the importance of not just having change um, that was symbolic, but the importance of having change that was sustainable, um, that was systemic. Stinnett is suing RTD and its contractor, Allied Universal. Documents released as part of that show more than a thousand use of force or detainment incidents by Allied over a five-year period. As a queer black woman who rides RTD often, Chantel Lewis says that she, a board member, has been treated poorly by security in the past. And she says she often hears from constituents and riders who have their own stories. There are folks who don't equate folks carrying guns and tasers as safety. And in fact, that is the opposite. It makes them feel unsafe. She wants the tens of millions of dollars RTD spends on security now to instead pay for a small army of social workers, homeless outreach workers, and medical professionals. But the Maine Bus Drivers Union opposes the resolution. Sherry Titus drives a bus in the heart of Denver. She told the RTD board she needs protection that only armed security can provide. I don't think anybody on that board or anybody who called in have been down to Union Station at 4 o'clock in the morning and see what goes on down there. We can't even go to the bathroom without somebody trying to rob you. Raphael Ward says he's needed help from security before when he drove buses in Denver and Boulder. But he also sees the appeal of people whose job it is to help, not enforce. When it's a place like a Denver Union Station, where it's become a de facto homeless shelter, I think that would be a much better place to use social workers rather than a security guard whose only directive is to get homeless people out. RTD says it regularly tracks Allied's performance. Still, it's considering a more modest overhaul that could result in a few more mental health workers across its system. It also might shrink the contract with Allied and beef up RTD's own small police force. That could give them more oversight of officers' behavior. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Ed Dwight has worn a lot of hats in his lifetime. 
Among his accomplishments, he's a former Air Force test pilot and the nation's first black astronaut candidate. He found his way to an art career later in life and became a distinguished sculptor. In his Denver studio, he makes large-scale bronze memorials depicting important moments and figures in African-American history. That's particularly pertinent now that statues and monuments have been coming down across the country as the nation reconsiders who should be celebrated and who should not. In Colorado, the statue of a Civil War Union soldier in front of the Colorado State Capitol and a Columbus Memorial in Denver's Civic Center Park were toppled by protesters earlier this summer, and the city of Denver removed a Kit Carson statue that sat atop Pioneer Monument Fountain. Dwight is part of the conversations about what to do with statues like these. Ed, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thanks. You're 87 years old and you are not retired. You still make art. What keeps you engaged? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of finishing what you started. You know, every time I th- think about retiring, somebody gives me another brick project that I cannot resist. <laughs> People around me keep telling me that I'm not 87, that I'm, you know, 50, 60, and and I need to start acting like I'm 87. <laughs> well, one of the things that people have contacted you and asked you to do is to make some pieces to replace statues that have been removed. Can you tell me about those requests? Well, you know, that it's, it's really interesting because I have a list of about 10, 12 memorials that I've been working on for years before all of this, uh, you know, realization of memorials and white memorials and Confederate memorials. And the idea of replacing these things, it hasn't moved to that yet. There's a lot of politics associated with replacing these memorials. Uh, and, and there's a lot of questions yet as to whether they should be replaced or whether they should be placed in a museum someplace. And as an artist, I'm not against that idea of of placing them into uh, a museum, because I think people ought to know about them. But the moral of the story has, should be that we won, if you will, because they're not out in a public forum anymore. They're they're in a place where you can go if you care to go visit them, uh, and see and read the stories about what they did. Uh, and and I think that that kind of history needs to be looked at and studied. So there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, so it sounds like you're saying these sculptures, they still have education work to do, but maybe not in these places that are celebrated. Yeah, yes. Uh, We we, we brought America, uh, and it took uh, this George Floyd thing to to bring this to a head. It was going to happen eventually because America has to come to grips with that. Uh, This argument whether you're a racist or not a racist and uh, whether you uh, are quite racist and don't know you're a racist and maybe you don't know that you're doing racist things and everybody's studying that now about, you know, what, what does all this racism mean? So anyway, back to the, if we can move back to this thing about coming to me and asking me to replace things, is this idea of of glomming onto a bunch of black artists and say, okay, we're going to bring you guys all in the room. We're going to assign each one of you one of these memorials to do to replace all these more memorials we tore down. Personally, I don't think that's going to happen because uh, there's not enough of us to go around, enough black artists. We have a few, and they know about the art part of it, but the art part of making a memorial is only maybe 40, 45% of making a memorial. The rest of it is politics and fundraising and planning and 
meetings and meeting with city councils and art committees and there's a whole host of things. And how do you spend that money that they give you to do, uh, you know? And my dream state was to to have a school for for those artists who asked me for help, to teach them foundry, to teach them granite work, to teach all the things that you end up having to do to build a memorial. Uh, and and this is not to say that that they can't go out and build memorials because the way the system is, you don't have to. All you have to do is the original model. In today's market, all you got to do is do original model of somebody and, and do 3D printing, and you don't have to touch it. You can go home and uh, go out on the beach and sit there until the foundry finishes, and you don't have to do anything, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but it ends up, in my opinion, it ends up in the white foundry's hands at the end of the day. And my idea was to have some, some black sculptors and black foundry workers and people like that that are not in the system now. And I, I wanted to add them to the system as an asset to the black community so we could end up being a little bit self-determining about how we get things done. So it's important to you to be involved from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And tell me about how you learned about that other portion of monument making, mm-hmm. not just the artistry, but also dealing with the politics and the city councils and the fundraising. You know, I came to the party with a global view because back when I was in the astronaut program, I traveled all over the world and I met presidents and senators and congresspeople and, and heads of uh, aerospace companies and heads of businesses. And so I spent a great deal of time doing subcontract work, even when, when I say subcontract work, when, uh, when you're in the astronaut program, all these companies are romancing you to buy their space gloves and to buy their space suits and buy their space helmets. So you're constantly going to these companies and, and having them sell you things. And, and so when you, when you come to the party with those kind of uh, the ability to talk to people, and then I, I went to work for IBM Corporation, and then I had a chain of restaurants uh, here in Denver. I had five restaurants here in Denver, and then I went into the construction business. I had an aviation flying service out of Stapleton Airport when it was still there, and I had an interior decorating firm. And, and so when I became an artist, I had been in business and doing so many different things and negotiating with banks. Uh, you get to get financing for my restaurant chain and uh, get financing for the aviation thing that we did and getting financing for my apartments and my condos and talking to uh, 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 company heads and savings and loan heads to get large sums of money for these building projects I had. Well, when I got into the art business, it was just art was just another commodity to me. And I had a great Rolodex file. So when you come to the party with that, uh, and you're tasked with doing uh, uh, an art project or, or some art, uh, which I never ever thought I'd end up doing. And, and I, I didn't do the first art till I was 45, sculpture till I was 45 years old. So I'm all self-taught. I'm speaking with distinguished sculptor Ed Dwight after the break. How did he find his way to sculpture in his 40s, after time in the Air Force and in business? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Boulder resident Angela Bryan did not want heavy painkillers like Oxycontin or codeine when she was battling breast cancer. She had another idea for how to deal with her pain. I actually emailed the surgeon through the patient portal and said, I don't want to take opiates. You know, I want to talk about cannabis for pain management. Marijuana 
pain and Angela's story on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Let's get back to my conversation with Ed Dwight. He's 87 years old. By the time he was in his 40s, he's already been a test pilot in the Air Force, the first black astronaut candidate, and he owned his own construction companies. I got into this art thing on a total humbug, if you will. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was taking my construction junk at the end of every day. I'd go out to my construction sites in my Mercedes Benz, and I would load the trunk up with all the pieces of metal on my construction sites. And I'd load them in the back of my car, and I'd take them home, and on the weekends, I made art out of them for, for my house. Uh, and our first black lieutenant governor, George Brown, was at my house at a party. And he called me to his office when he was elected lieutenant governor. And he says to me, uh, Ed, I love all that art in your house. They want a, a sculpture of me to put in the Capitol building as the first black lieutenant governor. And I says, that's not good for me because I weld nails together. I weld pieces of metal together. I've never modeled in my life. <laughs> And he says, you're going to the library, and you're going to get a book, and you're going to teach yourself how to sculpt, because you're going to be a sculptor, and you're going to be one of the greatest sculptors that ever lived when I get through with you. <laughs> and, and I thought this guy had lost his mind, because uh, I was making some serious money in my construction company. Uh, and uh, he told me a story that I'll share with you. He said there's 350 uh, years of black participation in America. And you cannot go to a museum, a park, a gallery, a city square, and find one black sculptor of a black person. And I'm going, uh, I went to white schools all the way through, so my response was, who cares? And he got angry with me. And he asked me if I knew who Harriet Tubman was. I had never heard of her. He asked me who Frederick Douglass was, and he got very angry with me. And he got me a pile of books. Uh, and he said, first of all, I want you to get in one of those jets you have out there, and I want you to fly around the country, and I want you to visit the museums, the parks. And I did. It took me several months, and I could not find any black statuary. And I came back, and I said, George, I see what you mean. And so I sold all my companies <laughs> and went back to the University of Denver and got a master's degree in sculpture and ran the sculpture department there for, for I was in the sculpture department there for three years. Uh, and uh, I, I left there and that's when I went in to start doing memorials from there. That is an incredible journey. So you moved from saying, who cares that there are no statues of black people in the United right, States right. to crafting many important ones, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in City Park in Denver. Right, yeah. Tell me what you remember about making that particular place. So I came up with a really wonderful idea because I had learned about Rosa Parks and I had studied Dr. King and, and he had traveled to India to deal with him with the nonviolence. And I, and I read every one of Dr. King's speeches. And I come to find out that Dr. King stole a lot of material from Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass because <laughs> I read all their speeches too. <laughs> and so I started comparing some phrasing and stuff like that. So so I decided that 
since uh, since Dr. King used all these people, he used Rosa Parks as a vehicle to, for the movement. Uh, Frederick Douglass, his speeches, and Sojourner Truth, her speeches, and his nonviolence from from Gandhi. I had them metaphorically standing on their shoulders, uh, and and so that, that that really kind of stole the the show that uh, that I would think that far ahead to to have him standing on the top and metaphorically standing on their shoulders. It strikes me that you're doing this incredible amount of research for yourself as an artist. And before all this started, you said you didn't know who Frederick Douglass was or Harriet Tubman. Tell me about the role of public education in public art. Oh, uh, you know, it's really, 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 really sad uh, to be totally candid with you because naturally, I, the, uh, I went to white Catholic schools and there wasn't any reason for any white Catholic school uh, uh, to teach black history to anybody, you know, and of course the public schools weren't teaching uh, any black history to anybody. So, uh, and I had grown up and oh, forty, about forty-two years old when I found out who Harry Tubman was, uh, and 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 as I began to look around, I I found that I was not alone. There were tons of people that are very accomplished uh, uh, African Americans that had gone and gotten to great heights in this country that had no, I didn't even know there was slavery for Christ's sakes. And that's what this black black movement really is really, really all about. And it has to do with the erasing and the removal of every aspect of of any black accomplishment, whatever, in the school systems. It's it's really distressing and it's still happening to this day. Uh, You know, even small accomplishments. And so the black folks never got credit for doing anything, uh, whether they built this country. I mean, the white people are finding out now that black people built this country, built the whole infrastructure of this country, and they're just not finding it out. And especially the younger ones are just not finding this out and say, and that's why you see so many whites marching now. This is all new to them. It's just, I mean, you know, and so they're saying, you gotta be kidding me, that happened and this happened? This stuff is all coming out now uh, memorials will help, but we got to get to the classrooms and start teaching these young kids what really happened here. And, and this is not to say that black people are better than white people, but at least equal to, uh, even though we only represent 13% of the population. So there's the education of the public through memorials. There's also the education in schools. And then you also want to educate artists, like you were talking about, having artists involved from the beginning to the completion of their monuments. So tell me about the infrastructure for black artists right now. What do you think that the art world is lacking? Well, first of all, it's capital, because nobody can raise any money. If you're a black artist, what do you do? You operate out of your garage. You can't borrow any money. If If you're a black artist, you can forget borrowing any money. For no matter what you're doing, uh, you know, and even if when you go do black mem- uh, black memorials, there's a thing on the part of the black and the white community that somehow because you're black, uh, you can do things cheaper than they uh, than you can if you're white. And I've had these white uh, uh, committees and say, this project is a million and a half dollars. Now you're black, so why don't you go to your suppliers and tell them to give you a black discount? And I said, well, I, I, I think I'd get thrown out of this guy's business if I walked to some white guy that sells me bronze and say, hey, dude, I'm black, so give me a black discount so I can do this thing cheaper, merely because I'm black, because I'm not worthy enough to pay the right price because it's a white memorial. 
they deserve a million and a half dollars for a white memorial. But that same memorial, if you do it in the black community, they want you to do it for a hundred thousand dollars. It's permeated throughout the forty years of this. I've been watching it, and I have to fight like crazy to fight. You know, they'll just they just flat ask me, "What are you going to do with all that money?" I mean, you know, I've done five million dollar projects. You know, what are you going to do with all that money? I said, well, first of all, I'm going to build you a $5 million memorial. That's what I'm going to do with it, you know. Well, what makes you think you can build a $5 million memorial? I said, because I've, maybe I've already built a $5 million memorial and I know how to do it. And so when, when, you, when you get a black artist that comes along that can't get capitalized, he can't get good sponsors, he can't get committees that will give the right amount of money to do what he needs to do, expecting him to somehow scrape and, uh, and scrounge and scrape to find the money from somebody, beg his friends for, to help him uh, get things finished. And what these black artists are tempted to do is take money that they know will not finish the project. They know it in the beginning that it won't finish the project, but they take it anyway and to go borrow money to finish it just so they can say they did it. Uh, you know, so they can build a portfolio. And that's the pain. But uh, but if you look around the country, I, I, I'm probably the only one. I've done probably $50 million worth, of $55 million, I think I carry $55 million worth of memorials since I've been doing all this. Uh, you know, but it, it has to do with the, uh, the ability to plan pr- properly, how to make a proper proposal, uh, how to, go- to have a good business plan for it, and most of the artists that do that don't, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to make the art. They don't know how to make the model of the art. But that's about the limit of it. And the rest of this stuff is all open for grabs. And they're at the mercy of other people. The foundries, you know. And a lot of the foundries will, will do a lot of the black artists' work at a discount. Because they know what I was just talking about. And they'll say, okay, we would normally charge you uh, you know, fifty thousand dollars to cast it, but we'll only charge you forty-five or forty-two or something like that, because they know that already, uh, and and that's that's not fair to them either. Uh, it's not fair to the foundries that you can't go to the foundries and say, okay, uh, you know, I have a million-dollar project, and I'm I'm going to pay you what you charge to do this project. You know, and that's what the problem is. These attitudes and the assumptions that you face—they sound infuriating. How do you think that we can seize this moment as a country and what do you want to see change about public art and the conversations we have around it? Well, you know, you know, the public art that I want to see is more in a way of truth-telling. Uh, and what I mean by truth-telling, uh, I tell stories. I, I don't mind doing single image memorials. Uh, you know, I've done tons of them, okay? But I do my best uh, all four sides of the pedestal. I, I excite people with, with great stories. And all four of the sides of the pedestal are engraved with stories about the people, what they did, what they can do, and words to live by, and all that kind of stuff, you know. But the largest story and my most successful memorials that I have are storytelling memorials. Uh, they're, uh, they start early in the game, and they just walk right through history telling the truth. And I mean, naturally, I get tons of emails. I've got 10 PhD candidates that have done PhDs on my memorials. Naturally, I'm their advisor and all that stuff, you know. 
And so, and those things are in history and in archives. But that's what I that's what I like doing, and that's what I want to teach other people to expand this. To it's one thing to have one sculpture of somebody standing there as a great person. So I like to give people a background, give them a context, and let them walk through history. And that's what I get when I get all these letters from kids, high school kids, college kids, people from from foreign lands come over here and they said, this is the most educational thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I could stand there for hours looking at that. But that's what I enjoy. And that's what I, I would, if I were to propose doing more memorials to anybody, would, would be to tell uh, uh, because I, I like what I call visitor time. It's called stay time. And so I build my memorials to get stay time. And I can almost, I can sit down there and walk up to a memorial where nobody knows who I am. And I can time uh, to a time watch. And they're going there uh, in a hurry. They're running. And all of a sudden, they're staying there for an hour, hour and a half. And I'm sitting there watching them. And they're reading everything, every word on there. And they're studying every figure on there. And they reach up and touch it and all that all kind of stuff. When I, but when I see that happen, you know, you said to yourself, hey, you know, uh, Dwight, you did okay. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for sharing your work with me today. Mm-hmm. Good. This is the first art thing I've done in, in years, by really? the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all about, about astronauts and flying in space and all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of fun to talk about art. <laughs> Ed Dwight of Denver has sculpted 35 major works, many of which depict important moments and figures in African-American history. Before we go... The Republicans and Democrats officially pick their party candidates for president at this month's conventions. We want to hear from Coloradans who are undecided, undecided about who you'll vote for or even if you'll vote in the presidential race. We're putting together a panel of yet-to-be-persuaded voters to hear what will drive the vote heading into Election Day. Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org. Again, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.